So Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would be with, be with us as we are gathered in your name, Lord. We have sung your praise. You've heard our voices. You've seen our hearts as we have worshipped you. And so now, Lord, we want to hear your voice and we want to see your heart as we open uh, your word. And so we pray that you would do what only you could do to take this living and active word and to transform our lives, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to help you out with that. Imagine that you were coming up 10th line this morning and you saw a a group of people just sort of standing around the little sign that we have out front that says Harvest Bible Chapel. And uh, you were sort of curious, are they they looking at the sign? Are they going to move the sign? Are they fixing the sign? But they're just kind of... They're just kind of standing there, and they all look kind of confused and kind of disappointed. So you you pull over, and you ask, you say, good morning, how are you, and you know, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're we're, we're at Harvest Bible Chapel. And and someone told us to to, to come to Harvest Bible Chapel, and they said that there's going to be worship, and teaching, and fellowship, and small groups, and kids programs, and, and, and and... Quite frankly, we're a little bit disappointed. And you try to explain to them, well, you're actually at the sign for Harvest Bible Chapel, but just right over there in that building, there's the group of people. That's the church that is Harvest Bible Chapel, but they're just, they're emphatic. No, this, this right here is Harvest Bible Chapel. And you try, you're like, dude, you're, you're missing it by like 300 feet. It's right over there. The, the point of the sign is to point you to the place. You see, you're not supposed to stop at the sign, unless it's a stop sign. The sign is supposed to point you somewhere else. If, if there was an emergency here and you, you went to the exit sign and then stayed at the exit sign, that would be a problem. You are supposed to go where that sign is telling you to go, through the doors. You see, we get into trouble if you stay at the sign. And in John chapter 6, Jesus is engaged with a conversation with a group of people who had seen one of his signs, but they wanted to just stay at the sign. Jesus wanted them to move on and to focus on what is that sign actually pointing to. And so we've got... A lot of ground to cover today, uh, 49 verses. I'm not sure how I end up in this series with all of the really long passages, but here we are again. And it's a conversation that Jesus has that sort of moves in three waves. Uh, There's three different groups of people. There's the crowds who are kind of seeking Jesus, and then the religious leaders who are labeled the Jews, and, and they are grumbling against Jesus. And then there's another group of disciples who eventually turn away from Jesus at the end of this conversation. There's sort of this rapid-fire series of six questions that Jesus uh, gets asked, and we're going to sort of uh, tackle this group by group, section by section. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to 
Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread Always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who believes, sorry, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The conversation begins with this larger crowd. These were the crowds that had witnessed the miracle earlier on in the chapter that Pastor Marvin uh, preached on uh, last week. The feeding of thousands of people from a borrowed lunch. And they, they come seeking after Jesus. And they're seeking after bread. And the, the first heading that I want you to jot down uh, today is, is that Jesus tells us about the food that satisfies us. The food that satisfies us. The people seem to be genuine in their pursuit of Christ. In verse 24, at the very end, it says that they are seeking him. They are seeking Jesus. There's been a lot that's been said and written and tried as far as catering your worship services and really your entire church structure to people who are seeking Jesus. And the seeker-sensitive movement taught us a lot of things. There were a lot of valuable things about explaining terms and, and, and creating a welcoming environment. But in a lot of ways, that, that movement has gone way too far. It, and, and a total emphasis on building your church simply around seeking Jesus loses sight of the reality that not everyone is seeking Jesus for the right reasons. And that's what Jesus calls these individuals on. Look at verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he, This would have been a great time for Jesus to say, well, I, I walked <laughs> on the water. 
In verse 25, it says, Jesus answered them. And do you ever notice this, that so often Jesus doesn't actually answer the question that gets asked? They simply want to know when he came. But he doesn't answer when he came. He's more concerned with why they came. So here's his quote-unquote answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they were seeking Jesus, but they weren't just seeking Jesus. They were seeking what they thought Jesus could do for them. There was a self-interest. There was a selfishness. There was a self-focus. And loved ones, there is this growing movement in, in our culture and in the developing world where, where Christ is proclaimed this notion of the prosperity gospel. And this idea that you don't seek Jesus just for the sake of Jesus. But you seek Jesus so that he would make you healthy and wealthy. That is a gangrene on the body of Christ. It's taking the focus off of the Son of God and on to the signs that the Son can, uh, can perform. And, and, and people who get wrapped up in the prosperity gospel, Christ is not their God. Money is their God. Christ is just a means to their end. And Jesus calls these, these individuals on that. He says, you're seeking me, but you're not seeking me to worship me. You're not coming to serve me. You're coming so that I can serve you. So that I can fill your bellies. And then he warns them in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Every office has one of them. The office fridge where people bring their brown bag lunches. And every office has a staff member that leaves a lunch or a salad or something in there for far too long. I was that guy. <laughs> Liz, our new admin, has the same uh, lunch bag uh, that, I, that I bring. And I brought my lunch in my lunch bag and then ended up having a lunch meeting or worked through lunch. Something happened and I didn't actually use my lunch. And then the next day I brought another lunch and assumed that the lunch that was in the fridge was Liz's lunch. And so, you know, day, uh, and I just thought every week, you know, she, she got there before me. So I just always assumed that she was just putting her lunch in the back of the fridge. And, and weeks went by and days went by. I never knew pasta could liquefy. It was one of those situations where like, I'm not scraping this out to save the Tupperware, just the whole bag. <laughs> not into the garbage. I walked out to the parking lot to the dumpster, the walk of shame. Because there is a food that perishes, isn't there? And maybe you've gone and tried to feed on something in this world. And you thought that it would nourish you. You thought that it would give you life. But in the end, it turned out to be rancid and putrid and disgusting. Jesus is warning about pursuing things of this earth. The, 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 the bread that doesn't ultimately satisfy, but that perishes. Verse 28, they ask him another question. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? These are, these are religious people. 
These are people who are thinking that they can earn their way to heaven. If they follow the Ten Commandments, if they attend church, if they help old ladies across the street, what can they do so that they can be doing what God wants them to do so that he can let them into heaven? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This, the, this is all God wants us to do is to believe in his son. And when you believe in his son, from that belief flows all kinds of good works. But the ultimate work of God is a work of faith, to believe in Jesus Christ. It's the key word. You can't read a, a chapter without coming across the word believe. You, you can hardly read a paragraph. You can hardly put two or three sentences together in the Gospel of John without this concept of believing coming up. And Jesus reiterates it again. This is the work of God, verse 29, that you believe in him whom he has sent then they ask him something that's just, just kind of confusing to me in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? The whole reason why they got in a boat and, and left where they were to go to, to Capernaum was so that, because they had already seen a sign. But that they're asking, what sign do you do that we would believe in you? What work do you perform? Then they start talking about the Old Testament, verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It says as it is written, they're probably quoting Nehemiah uh, chapter 5 or um, Psalm 78 there. They got Moses on their mind because remember in Pastor Marvin's message that they had called Jesus the prophet. And Moses had made that prediction about a prophet that was going to come like Moses. And so they're trying to discern if Jesus is that is that a prophet? They don't understand the way that he's talking, this other bread. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus says, make sure you're quoting that verse in Nehemiah 9 properly. When it says he gave bread, it's not talking about Moses. It's talking about God the Father is the one who gave bread. The bread, And then he relates it to himself. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus wants them to understand. Yes, there's food for the stomach and that's what the sign initially was. But the sign points to food for the soul. There is physical food, but there is also spiritual food. And there's that word believe again. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They want to see signs. Jesus says, you've seen me. The point of the signs was to point you uh, to me, stop worrying about the signs and look at what's in front of you. Listen to what I'm saying. He says in verse 37, all, the, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, notice, and believes, there's that word again, in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up 
on the last day. Now look at their response in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They grumbled. Now if you, if you read the Old Testament and the, the story of the Exodus, when God gave manna, the people were grumbling. They, were, they grumbled when they had no manna, when they didn't know what they were going to eat. And then they grumbled when they had the manna and they didn't want to have manna. They want to have something else. And so it's, in, it's very interesting. You know, it's so funny. People don't change. This is why I love the word of God. I mean, we can, we're more sophisticated, yes. We're more technologically advanced. But at the end of the day, these people are exactly the same as the people in Moses' day and age. And these people are exactly the same as you and me. We all have the same issues. And so we grumble just the way these people grumbled, just the way the people in Moses' day uh, grumbled. So this is the next group of people. They're labeled the Jews here. And whenever John uses that, it, it normally is referring to the religious leaders. We're going to find when we get to the, the end of the section that this conversation is happening in a synagogue. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now, now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice how when they're grumbling with Jesus in verse 41 and verse 42, they talk about Jesus' earthly father. They're, they're concerned. They're, they say, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? Like, they're, they're thinking, how can he be saying that he came down from heaven? We know who his parents are. I mean, I was at your bar mitzvah, Jesus. You, you grew up with us. And they're concerned about his earthly father, but then Jesus, following the theme of father, look what he says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Not Joseph, but his heavenly father, the Father. So Jesus initially introduces this idea of the food that satisfies us. And then he tells them about the Father who draws us. The Father who uh, draws us. That's the second thing I'd like you to uh, jot down. The food that satisfies us and the Father who draws us. Jesus makes it pretty clear in verse 44, no one can come to me. Unless the Father draws him. This is describing the divine sovereignty in salvation. We call it the, the doctrine of election. When a nation or a province or a city holds an election, the purpose of the election is to choose a leader. And when we talk about the doctrine of election, we talk about God choosing 
those who will become part of his family. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the doctrine of election. Jesus uses an Old Testament passage in Isaiah 54, verse 13. Down in verse 45, he says, It is written in the prophets, it is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. So God the Father is the one who teaches us, spiritually speaking, who opens our eyes so that we can see not just the signs, but see what the sign is pointing to. And then Jesus clarifies at the end of verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The Bible teaches here and in other places that God has predetermined and predestined according to his infinite foreknowledge those who will be saved. And those who are saved are those who have been taught by God. Now some of you think, wait, 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 wait. I thought when I became a Christian, I mean, I sang the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Doesn't my choice, you know, mean Anything, if God chose me before the foundation of the world, if all of this has been predestined, then what's the point of, of my choice? Well, look back at verse 35. He says, I'm the bread of life. And then he says, whoever, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's this open invitation, nine verses apart. You have this emphasis on anyone can choose. And then only the Father is the one who can draw people. Even one chapter earlier, Jesus told the Pharisees, "You in chapter 5, verse 40, he says, you refuse to come to me. He emphasizes their choice. So when we talk about salvation, we're talking about divine sovereignty, but we're also talking about human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God chooses us and we choose God. Now, these two things are not mutually exclusive. And these two things work together. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile God's choice and man's choice? How do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? He says, I don't. And then he said, the reason why I don't reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility is that you don't need to reconcile friends. They are friends. They work together. We, in our finite minds, might not know how these two things interact with one another, but God does. And the Bible teaches both. And Jesus makes it very clear here that it is the Father who is doing the... He's imploring them to choose. Don't work for the perishable bread. Work for the bread that gives life. Make a choice. Focus on what really matters. Believe in me. He keeps saying this. And yet, at the same time, he's saying it's the Father who does the drawing, human responsibility, and God's sovereignty. And this is why, listen, this is why the sovereignty of God is so important for us to understand. If you look back at what it says in verse 37, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So there's divine sovereignty, gives me, will come to me. That's the human decision. Then it says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, when Jesus talked about the sovereignty of God in election, when when the New Testament authors like Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9, other places talk about the sovereignty of God, 
it's always for the purpose of comforting the people of God. It's not just so that we have these theological concepts in our mind. Jesus makes it clear. Everyone who the Father gives, in verse 37, comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So this is why it's good news that it's God's choice and our choice. Because God's a lot more consistent than we are. We friend and unfriend, we follow and unfollow, we, you know, everyone wants to erase our NCAA bracket right now and make a new one, right? We choose, but then we want to unchoose. That's not how God works. It says, everyone whom the Father gives, Jesus will never cast out. Choice has been made. End of story. And this is why it's comforting, because yes, we cling to Jesus and we hold on to him, but what's holding us is not that how hard we are holding on to Jesus, but how much Jesus is holding on to us. That he has chosen us. Now you might be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? I'm glad you asked. It says, he says in verse uh, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. And then he says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. How do I know if I'm chosen? Do you believe in Jesus? Then you're chosen. How, how do I know if I'm truly saved? Do you believe in Jesus? If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he came from heaven and dwelt in human flesh, if you believe that he lived 33 years of sinless perfection, if you believe that he suffered and died on the cross to bear the punishment that all of us deserve for our sins, if you believe all of those things, then you're chosen. Then you have eternal life. And verse 47, I love how it says, it doesn't say you will have eternal life. I love how Jesus always talks about eternal life in the present tense. We've got it now. We're living it now, which is such an encouragement. Verse 49, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven, so that, so that this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now i got to give you a quick heads up here as we jump into verses 52 to 59. It's about to get weird. Okay? And so to some of you who are sort of you know, new to the Christian faith, maybe never read the Gospel of John before, maybe never read the New Testament before, just hang with me, okay? It's going to get weird for a little while. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 52. Uh, so the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. 
what on earth is going on here? Is this Christian cannibalism? Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, even in the Old Testament law, you weren't allowed to, 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 to ingest blood. You had to, you had to be very careful in how you prepared meat. And Jesus now is saying, eating my flesh, drinking my, my blood. The people who are hearing it are very confused. Now we need, we, need to, we need to understand that there's a bit of a pattern in the Gospel of John, isn't there? Of Jesus saying something sort of metaphorically and people misunderstanding him, right? Tear down this temple in three days and I'll rebuild it. He was talking about his body himself, but everyone thought he was talking about the actual physical temple. That's John chapter 2. Then in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is like, do I have to go back in utero? Like, what are you talking about? John chapter 4, Jesus is like, I've got living water. And the woman's like, you ain't got no bucket. (laughs) So there's there's this pattern of Jesus says some things, metaphorically speaking, and at first glance that the people don't get it. Now we have the advantage of like 2,000 years of like Bible study and theology and all of that and Christian history to sort of make sense of these things. But you can understand why people would have been initially thrown by what he says, but context is everything. One of the reasons why we're looking at such a large passage today is so that we can understand the context and know what does Jesus mean when he says this. Let me, let me show you here on the, uh, on the screen. In verse 40, Jesus said, everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. Verse 47, he talks about eternal life. Verse 51, he talks about living forever. Verse 58, living forever. So he's talking about this idea of eternal life, living forever. Now the first two verses, he emphasizes the word believe. Whoever believes. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes. So believing means you get eternal life. Now that he's speaking metaphorically with all of the things he's already said about the bread in the past, now he says, if anyone who eats this bread, he will live forever. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So if we treat this theological conundrum kind of like an algebra equation, if if believing leads to eternal life and eating the bread leads to eternal life, then When he's talking about feeding on the bread, he's also talking about believing. Do you follow? Eating and believing are are being sort of synonymously associated with one another. Now we were studying this passage together as elders as we often do. And Pastor Chris pointed out something really clarifying. He said if you look at this paragraph and if you substitute every time that Jesus says eat or drink and replace it with believe... This paragraph begins to make sense. So just, I just jotted it down for you. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you believe in the flesh of the Son of Man and believe in his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever believes on my flesh and believes in my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever believes on my flesh and believes in my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever believes on me, he also will live because of me. So, believing and eating. Listen, what do you do with bread? It's not a trick question. You eat it. What do you do with the Son of God? Don't say eat him. 
There's physical bread for our stomach and there's spiritual bread for our soul. The way that we receive the physical bread is by eating it. The way that we receive the spiritual bread is by believing. So just as, just as our physical body cannot live in this world without physical bread, spiritually we cannot live in the next world without spiritual bread. In order to live in this life, we need bread. In order to live for eternity, we need the bread that comes from heaven. Physically, you can't survive without bread. Spiritually, you can't survive without Jesus. We eat the bread, we believe in Jesus. Now, some of us are maybe coming from a Roman Catholic background where you were taught it's really just a misunderstanding of this, of this passage that that when the priest is at the front during the mass, that the, the bread and the cup actually transform, transubstantiation, into the actual flesh and the actual blood of Jesus. That's just a misunderstanding of this passage. That's like being like Nicodemus and thinking that you have to be physically reborn. That's like being the woman at the well looking around for a bucket. It's a metaphor. Showing how desperately we need Jesus. That he is the only way. That you can't live without bread. You can't live without Jesus. Is everyone, is everyone following? I hope that's clarifying for, uh, for, for many of us. So Jesus talks about the food that satisfies. And the father that draws us. And then lastly, on the theme of believing, the faith that saves us. The faith that saves us. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter now. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The faith that saves us. Verse 60, the people say, this is, this is a hard saying. The label that's used there is it's, it's many of his disciples. This is the third group of people. This is not the 12, because later he addresses the 12. But this is a, a broader group of people who were following Jesus around and listening to his teaching. And after this sermon, they're, they're offended and they're confused. They say, this is a hard saying. And Jesus, again, rather than... Rather than trying to set their mind at ease, he says something even more offensive to them. In verse 62, he says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? This is a, 
We've talked before about this phrase, son of man. It's a quotation from Daniel chapter 7. This, this incredible being who is given authority to rule over the entire world. And when Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's referring back to Daniel 7, saying that that's who he is. And then he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. It's the spirit that gives life. This is something that John mentioned in John chapter 1 when talking about the first time he introduced the concept of believing. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Right from the beginning of John. This idea of divine sovereignty and God's will. And it happening by the Spirit. Jesus here is helping us understand, how does the Father draw us? How does the Father draw lost sinners towards the Son? He does it by sending His Spirit. And it is His Spirit that does the drawing on behalf of of the Father. But the flesh is no help at all. Amen? Amen? That's my testimony right there. The flesh is no help. Uh, try Try to live the Christian life in your flesh. Try to indulge your flesh sinfully. It's no help. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear. It's the Spirit, it's the Spirit, it's the Spirit. And then he reiterates divine sovereignty again. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he he says in verse uh, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus knew about Judas all this time. He knew about him. But the focus here is not, as as a bunch of disciples turn their back on Jesus in verse 66, the focus here is not really on Judas. The focus is on Peter. You can always count on Peter to speak up, right? And we so often give Peter a hard time because, you know, he, he sort of struggled with a different version of foot and mouth disease. And uh, he was always sort of saying the wrong thing. But listen, a lot of times Peter did say the wrong thing. But a couple of times Peter said the absolute right thing. And sometimes we're so timid. And we're so afraid that we're going to embarrass ourselves. And we're so afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. That we don't say the right thing when we know we should. And Peter nails it right here. Look at what he says. Verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the faith that saves us. They had believed and come to know who Jesus is. And so this morning as we prepare our hearts to take these symbols in our hands... We, we remember the faith that has saved us. We, we eat because we believe. We drink because we believe. There's nothing, listen, this is just juice from the grocery store. These are just crackers that we bought. There's nothing special about this drink. There is nothing special about this bread. There's nothing special about this man up here on this platform. There's nothing magical or mystical that's happening up here. These are symbols. But that does not mean that what's about to happen right now is unimportant. 
that there should be reverence and sobriety and worship and awe in this place as we take the bread, as we take the cup, and when we eat, we believe. And when we drink, we believe. We believe that Christ came in the flesh and lived on this earth. We believe that his blood was spilt for us. And we take these symbols, which are symbols, which are signs, but we don't stop at the sign. The sign points us to the Savior. And so I want to invite the ushers to come forward now. I'm going to lead us uh, in a prayer, and then we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Lord, we thank you that it is the Spirit who gives life and that the flesh is of no value. And so, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would infuse in us a sense of awe and wonder at the reality of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, Lord. For many of us who have been walking with Christ for decades, Lord, I pray that there would be a freshness, a newness of a reality of Christ dying for our sins. Lord, for those of us who are new believers, Lord, may we experience just the joy that comes from knowing the freedom of having our sins forgiven. Would you meet with us in this moment, we, we pray. God, we don't want to stop at the sign. Allow these signs to point us towards the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.